following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you, Reuben, for inviting me back to um, speak to you. Um, this week, I happened to go to the movies... And um, before the main feature started, there was a trailer. And um, I don't know if you know anything about trailers. It seems a bit odd that they appear before the feature film, and yet they're called a trailer. You know, a trailer is a sneak preview. I've entitled this message today, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, Instead. A trailer is a sneak peek of a feature film that will be exhibited in the future in a cinema known as a theatre. Cinema seems old-fashioned word today, doesn't it? Trailers tend to be about 120 seconds long, on average. They're previewing a film which is much longer, roughly about, on average, two hours in length. The trailer appears before the film up to at least a year beforehand, often in theatres and, of course, more recently on the internet. Many of you will have seen great trailers. But as good as the films are, and the film I saw this week, it is not the greatest story ever told. You see, the greatest story ever told is of biblical proportions. It spans Genesis through to Revelation. But do you know within the greatest story, there is the greatest story? A story inside of a story. And the greatest story in the greatest story spans only four books of the Bible. They are commonly known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of the 66 books of the Bible, it's these four that form the pivot point, the fulcrum, the climax. It is upon which the entire narrative or story or God's creative, creative desires for humanity is based. It all turns on those chapters contained in those books. It's the climax of God's narrative, the greatest story with inside the greatest story. It is, of course, the story of the incarnation of God. So Adam, what does incarnation mean? That sounds like a pretty nice word. It's an amazing word. It means God became a man, walked among us, born of a woman, experienced the same trials and testings that you and I experienced, the same losses and joys. It was God in flesh as the divine nature, the divine being of Jesus' Son, wraps himself in a fleshly cloak. His life, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection are the greatest story inside the greatest story. But do you know that God, like most movie makers, like a Peter Jackson, gets excited about what he's creating? I don't know if you know this. Have you ever created something? My son um, Isaac's a photographer. And so when he's working on some photos, there'll come an opportunity where he'll say, Dad, do you want to have a look at this? Or my son Nathaniel, he's an artist, he's an artist in training. And he'll say, Dad, come look at this. Now the work's not finished, but it's a sneak preview of what it's going to look like. Do you know that God is so excited about his greatest story with inside the greatest story that he created a trailer? 
He took the 3,779 verses of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he condensed it down to a mere 14 in Genesis 22, verses 1 through to 14. He didn't put it just a year before the main event was about to take place, Reuben. It's 2,000 years in advance. So excited was he about the greatest story inside of the greatest story. These 14 verses, ladies and gentlemen, which we're going to explore this morning, and you should have a handout there and hopefully a pen and paper ready so you can jot down things and add notations in the margins there. These 14 verses are jam-packed with action, events, people, and items. In the story, you're going to find a knife, two mysterious young men, a pile of wood, a 115-year-old patriarch, a mountain, an angelic being, a fire, a child of promise, and believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, a donkey. This is why Paul, in the book of Galatians, and you can fill this in as our first gap in the notes here, in Galatians, Paul said, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This story of the gospels appears in Genesis 22 and as though God was preaching to Abraham what was to come. I want us to consider Mount Moriah, the very first point I have here this morning. You see, after these things, verses 1 and 2, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, um, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Do you know, I'm not, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you could preach a good number of sermons on tests from God. Some of you are actually going through a test right now. And I just want to hit on three things briefly that you should bear in mind as you go through a test. And I can tell you something that Abraham went through a test. Emotional test, spiritual test, physical test. You see, here's what tests do. They test our affections. Who do we really rely on? Who is really the author of our faith? When things are going well, it's easy to say, Jesus is the author of our faith in an offhanded manner. But when we get tested under trials and the fire comes, it starts to reveal where we're putting our trust. And the beauty thing about tests is it activates faith. Faith starts to arise in us as the test comes upon us, and that's a good thing. And then finally, it shows us that we are in fact stronger than we thought we were by God's grace and his power working in our life. That's what happens in a God-given test. But it's more than this for our man Abraham. You see, Mount Moriah in the Hebrew literally means, my teacher is Yah. My teacher is God. God is going to run a Sunday school lesson for Abraham. He's going to give him a cosmic trailer, a teaser, a preview, a foreshadowing, a forefiguring of what he's going to do in the future on a three-day field trip. A three-day field trip. The first thing we discover on this field trip is the father's love for his son. 
an amazing love. In verse 2, God describes this relationship of Abraham with his son Isaac as being the one whom you love. This Hebrew word means vehement, ardent, passionate, incandescently hot. This is not just some whimsical feeling, oh, I love you. It is something that is deep that goes beyond that superficial love that the commercial world would try and put upon us for brands and cars and clothes. It's an interrelational one with another human being. It's deep. He loved his son. What father would not love his son? You know, one of my sons is um, Josiah. We've got a picture of him here. He's much older now, but this was Josiah when he was just a couple of years old. He was so cute. And the thing about a baby, when a baby is just born, they're so light. It seems inconceivable that this is a human being. It's, it's so light in your hands, so fragile. The little, little feet, the little, little toes. They even have toenails. And then the fingers with the fingernails. And, and I would hold on to um, my son, Josiah, and... Um, he was gorgeous. He was born with a whole heap of hair. But you know that little fontanelle, that area on the top of the skull that kind of moves up and down with a very young child? And how when they sleep, their skin almost looks transparent. The sound of their breath. And he loved to snuggle. He would crunch himself up and then start burrowing and burrowing, trying to get right inside your shoulder up in here. God wants me to sacrifice this. My son, my beloved son. For Abraham, his son was more than, I guess, in many ways, other sons, in that he was the son of his very old age. He was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. It was the first child from Abraham through his wife, Sarah, the child of promise. He had been waiting a long time. And now, God, you want this? I love this son. God recognized that he loved this son. Do you know in the New Testament, this relationship is echoed and seen with God the Father, with God the Son. The strong interrelational bond between God the Father and Jesus is so evident in the Scriptures. In Matthew 3.17, God says this when Jesus rises up out of the river Jordan and is being baptized by John, he says these words. This is God speaking audibly. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Imagine that. The God of all glory saying, this is my beloved son. Think of the closeness of this relationship. As Abraham loved Isaac, so God, even more, loved his only begotten son, Jesus. The next point is this, that the father and son had an amazing agreement. Verses 6 and 8 finds an echo of a phrase. Both of them together. You should jot this down and underline it and put next to it John 10.30. Think about this. You see, Isaac really was not a child by this point in time. Our own imaginations, and the last picture I gave you of my son, Josiah, would lead you to believe that perhaps 
Isaac went involuntarily to Mount Moriah. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, at least something like 15 years had passed since his birth. He probably looked a little bit more like this. This is my son, Josiah, in his late teens, moving into his 20s. See, our imagination not helped by my last picture of my son. We often think Isaac was just a mere child at this point when this event takes place. But if you look carefully at verse 6, you'll note that Isaac is the one who carries the wood up the mountain. Scholars believe that Isaac was at the very least 12 years of age and perhaps 20 years old. Perhaps in the prime of his manhood, moving out from adolescence, teenage years, into his young manhood. It's therefore highly unlikely that if Isaac had not wanted to go, that his old, 115-year-old father, or thereabouts by this time, could have forced him. Isaac went willingly with his father. He trusted him. He climbed that mountain with him, carrying the very wood that would be used to light the sacrifice. He could stop him. He could have resisted. He could have manhandled his father, but he does not. They went together in close unity. In the Gospels, we discover Jesus' relationship with his father was exactly like this. I do nothing of myself, it says in John 8, 28. But as my father taught me, I speak these things. John 10, 30, one of those great texts. Jesus says these words, I and my father are one. How close is that? The incarnation, incarnated Jesus says, I am my Father, we're the same in all things. So we've discovered that both Abraham and Isaac share this love. Both of them work together, just like God the Father and God the Son. But now enters the story, an unusual creature. It's a donkey. Now a donkey is an animal used to transport them. We find it in verse 3. Now there is a principle in what we call hermeneutics, which is a fancy word which just talks about studying the Bible and applying it to our lives. And in this principle of hermeneutics is the principle of the first mention. This means that if we study the first appearance of a person, animal, place, event, or doctrine, it will give us valuable understanding in its appearance later in the Bible. And this is the first time a donkey appears in the scripture. It fulfills the classification of the first mention, in this case of an animal. To understand the donkey in God's thinking and in the Bible and the scriptures, we need to divest ourselves of some of our own views on donkeys. Let's have a look at this picture up here. Now, it depends on how old you are. <laughs> if you're of an older generation, I'm going to be 50 this year, which is a big shock to you. You're saying, Adam, you look no older than 28. <laughs> you might know this character down here by the river. This is, of course, Eeyore from A.A. A. Milne's books about Christopher Robin, Piglet, Wall, and um, Tigger. Now, Eeyore is not the happiest of donkeys. <laughs> In fact, he is perpetually depressed. He lives in a place in the 100-acre wood in the southeast corner, and there's a sign there that simply says, gloomy place. 
a swamp and a bog. That's the sign. He has nothing positive to say any, about anything. Some of you know A.A. A. Milne. Who knows A.A. A. Milne, the author? James James, Morrison Morrison, Weatherby George Dupree. <laughs> Looked after his mother even though he was only three. James James, Morrison Morrison. Said to his mother, said he, you must never go down to the end of town unless you go down with me. And of course, what happened? She went down to the end of town, she got lost and never came back. It's a little warning there, isn't it, ladies? <laughs> when James James Morrison Morrison tells you, I must come with you, he's right. A.A. <laughs> Milne, though, of course, is for an older generation, for a younger generation. It is a donkey associated with Shrek. It's the comedic sidekick of this green ogre. He is, of course, euphoric, talkative somewhat, can be sensitive, maybe slightly neurotic, and voiced, of course, by Eddie Murphy, about the only decent thing he's done of the last 20-odd years. And we get these ideas of donkeys of being absurd, of being depressed or uncontrollable, but the Bible's got a very different view of donkeys, and so does God. You see, donkeys were used as beasts of burden for both the rich and for the poor. And in ancient societies of the Near East, the area that the Bible takes place in, even amongst non-Hebrew faiths, in other words, pagan faiths, the donkey was often seen as a creature associated with royalty and coronations. And we can see this in pagan texts from the Old Testament period. In the Old Testament of the Bible, we discover in Genesis 49 that Judah is not only linked when he gets his blessing from his father in Genesis 49 with the lion, but also a donkey. We discover in Zechariah 9.9 there is a prophecy. Your king is coming to you riding on a donkey. When Solomon goes to get uh, crowned in 1 Kings chapter 1, he rides in on David's donkey. And of course, this was fulfilled in what we call Palm Sunday, which we are thinking about today here at church, in Luke 9, 35 to 38. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments on it, and he sat on it. And the crowd, of course, cried out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Who was riding into Jerusalem? A king on a donkey. This brings us to our two men, our two mysterious men. They appear in verses 3 and 5. In the first verse, the, he, Abraham takes these two men up Mount Moriah. But there is a point in the journey as they head towards the apex of Mount Moriah where Abraham tells the men to stop and remain with a donkey. How could this have any link to the New Testament? I'm going to suggest to you that these two men went up a certain point, but after that they were unable to see what transpired between Abraham and his son Isaac. It was hidden from them. Do you know in the New Testament when Jesus was crucified, there were two men crucified either side of him, criminals, one of which mocked Jesus. The other said, why do you mock him? For he has done nothing wrong, and we deserve this. 
And he asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. You'll know this famous story in the Bible because Jesus responds by, this day you shall be in paradise with me. But in the immediate next verse, after Jesus utters those words, something unusual happens. The Bible says from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness on the earth. And at that moment, across those three hours, a divine transaction occurred between God the Father and Jesus the Son. A spiritual transaction that those men, though they were nailed on crosses either side of Jesus, could not see. It was just as it was with Abraham and Isaac and those young men, unable to see what transpired. So it was hidden from these two. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Abraham goes up the mountain, and in verse 6 we discover that he has in his hand a knife, and he has fire. A knife and fire speaks of divine judgment, I don't know if you're aware of this, it's our principle of first mention. The first time that fire is mentioned in the Bible and a knife, believe it or not, it's combined in the book of Genesis, the third chapter, and after Adam and Eve sin and they are ejected from the Garden of Eden, God at the eastern gate sets up a cherubim, a mighty angelic being with what? A flaming sword, a flaming knife. It is a symbol of the judgment of God for their sin that they are now withheld his most intimate presence in the Garden of Eden, a place of paradise. Jesus, of course, will in the future come again, and he will bring judgment. The Bible says in Revelation 19.15, Jesus will come back with a sharp sword to strike the nations. Hebrews 12.21 tells us that our God is also a consuming fire. And of course, what transpired in those three hours of darkness? It was Jesus meeting that judgment for you and I. In Isaiah 53, 4-5, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. When they went up the hill, they had some wood. In verse 6 we find that it was laid upon Isaac. Wood, ladies and gentlemen, is not just good for constructing things. It's actually very symbolic of deliverance. Do you know the very vessel that delivered Noah and his family and Russell Crowe was an ark. He needs saving. It was an ark made of wood. In the wilderness, when the children of Israel come across a water source, but it's bitter, what does Moses do? God shows him some wood and he throws it into the water and it becomes sweet. It's amazing how wood has this preservative, transformative power that can take bitter situations and make them sweet. The Ark of the Covenant, we know, was all gold. 
But do you know at its base it was a wooden box overlaid with gold? That Ark of the Covenant that protected the children of Israel, that gave them victory in battle, and was the place where God would visit the people of Israel on the mercy seat between the wingtips of the angels on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was made of what? Wood. Isaac carrying this wood up Mount Moriah foreshadowed what? It's pretty obvious. Jesus carrying the cross up to Golgotha, to Calvary. In 1 Peter 2.24, we read, Who himself bore our sins in his own body, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Jesus was willing to do this for us. It's an incredible tale of love, ladies and gentlemen. This is where the story becomes interesting. Because God, up till this time, in this preview of trailer, of what he's going to do in the New Testament, he mixes things up a little bit. And up till this point, Isaac has represented Jesus. But God is now going to take the representation of Jesus, and he's going to apply it to a lamb. And Isaac, instead of being Jesus, is going to represent fallen humanity under God's wrath for its sinfulness. I want you to catch this. God changes it up here. Up till now, Isaac has represented Jesus. That identification is going to be switched out to a lamb or a ram in verses 8 and 13. This is the first time a sheep appears in the Bible. It's a very common animal, as we're going to discover, though. It's mentioned over 80 times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. 28 times in the book of Revelation. When Jesus appeared before John, and he saw him coming to him, what did John immediately say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He said these words, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, the one who will carry your burdens. In Isaiah 53, we discover that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This was fulfilled, of course, in Mark 15 when Pilate asked him, saying, Do you answer nothing as Jesus was being accused? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, and the Bible says that Pilate marveled. This idea of this lamb being a substitute for Isaac. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his Horns, possibly even speaking of the crown of thorns that Jesus had on his head. And we know that after three days, when this whole amazing field trip is over, Abraham and Isaac will descend down the mountain, and who's alive, ladies and gentlemen? Isaac, who should be dead, speaking or prefiguring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It tells us that in the book of Hebrews 11:17, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him, that's Abraham, in a figurative sense. What then did God teach us as we went up Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac this morning in conclusion? 
What did he teach us? I hope you enjoyed the journey. It was probably less stressful than it was at the time for Abraham and for Isaac. I think what we can learn, because we've been taken up to a place where God teaches us, I hope, in the Spirit this morning, as Abraham loved Isaac, so God loved Jesus. We learned as Abraham and Isaac were unified, so were God the Father with God the Son. As Isaac rode up Mount Moriah on a donkey, so Jesus entered up into Jerusalem on a donkey. As these young men were denied a view of what transpired between Abraham and Isaac, so the two thieves on the cross were denied a view of what spiritually transpired between the Father and the Son, this divine transaction. As the knife and fire represent God's judgment, so it also prefigures Christ who will come in judgment, but also the fact that he bore our judgment and our punishment. As the wood was laid upon Isaac, so was a wooden cross laid upon our Savior Jesus. As a lamb was provided as a substitute for Isaac, so Jesus is our substitute. It is the greatest story within the greatest story. It's the most powerful cosmic trailer you are ever likely to find. It was written 2,000 years before the event by a different author at a different time, showing the amazing continuity of God's word and his inspiration in the scriptures. I think the most powerful word in all of these 14 verses in this trailer is the word instead. It speaks not just to Abraham, but it speaks down four millennia, 4,000 years to 2014 to Albany, right here on the North Shore in New Zealand. You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and suffered instead of you and me. I want you on your notes, if you have a pencil there, I want you to write Jesus before the word instead. Jesus before the word instead. And then after the word instead, I want you to write of, and I want you to insert your name. I want you to insert your name. So it's going to read Jesus instead of Reuben. Jesus instead of of Mark, Jesus instead of Sandra, Jesus instead of Adam, Jesus instead of you. For greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5.8 so beautifully puts this as I hand over to Reuben. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. 
Thank you for listening. <laughs>